Well, don't you love a good plot twist? Those moments in a story that, that catch you by surprise and, and completely change your, your understanding of the story. Everything you thought you knew is just turned on its head. Um, th- there's a few that come to mind for me. So just a little spoiler alert. All of these films are more than 20 years old, so I, so I feel like it's okay to, to give a little spoiler. But I won't be offended if you want to put your fingers in your ears or put, put yourselves on mute. Um, so, so firstly, the, the famous reveal in the, in the second Star Wars film, we, we all know that one, don't we, that Darth Vader is Luke's father. Or the, the climax of the Shawshank Redemption, where, where the prisoner, Andy, is revealed to be innocent and he's been working all this time on, on his escape. Or uh, the moment in, in the sixth sense where you realise where you realise that Bruce Willis has been a ghost all along. Well, at the heart of Christianity is a story. That's what Easter's all about. Um, Ian, Ian was just praying that there, wasn't he? We don't first and foremost believe in, in sort of a set of facts about God, but, but we believe in a story, a true story, the story of Jesus Christ and his life, death and resurrection. It's the story that is behind all of the stories and, and the one that shapes how we see everything else. And this story has a gigantic plot twist. So over the next couple of weeks, I want us to explore the story of Easter and, and, and the surprise of Easter. And another little spoiler alert here, Jesus wins. So today we're going to think about the story as, as a whole. Um, we'll see how, how Jesus ends up as king and what the cross has got to do with that. Um, and we're going to take it in three acts, three acts of the story. So act one is the setup, act two, the twist, and act three, the payoff. So act one, the setup, uh, and it begins on Palm Sunday. So t- today is, is Palm Sunday in the, in the church calendar where we uh, remember um, Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And Palm Sunday is about um, kind of expectation and, and anticipation. For us folk here in Rotherham, living 2,000 years later, we, we know the storyline, don't we? We know what happens. We anticipate the death and resurrection of Christ. Uh, I guess like you would watching a film for the second or third or fourth time, you kind of know what's going to happen. But for the Jews at the time, they, they were watching it for the first time. They, they kind of had a different set of expectations. And their nation's history was one of God being with them and and winning victories for them. We read about them in the Old Testament, don't we? Sometimes we're a bit uncomfortable when we get to those parts of the Bible. Uh, But what we're meant to see in these stories is that that God is on their side. And when God is on your side, then you're on the winning side. Israel's enemies were were God's enemies. and, And they discovered that, yeah, being on God's team was being on the winning team. God led them out of slavery in Egypt through Moses, led them on into the promised land, and eventually the Canaanites were, were moved on. And um, yeah, Israel lived in the land that was flowing with milk and honey. They had peace, they had prosperity. They did rebel against God later on, and, and God sent the Babylonians to come and take them into captivity, but uh, God, was, God was still on their side, and he led them back into the promised land, set them free again. 
So the Jews in the first century had this, um, had this vision, this picture of God being a victorious warrior. They were still God's chosen people. Their very identity as a people was tied up in God being a warrior king. And if we read the Psalms, the, the language of many of them conveys this, this expectation that God will win victory for his people. Uh, these are the words of King David in Psalm 20. Now this I know, the Lord gives victory to his anointed. He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. So this is, this is who Israel understood God to be, a warrior who fights for his people, who liberates them from their enemies and brings them into blessing. God defeats his foes and he creates a, a kingdom of blessing for his people. But in the first century, the people of Israel didn't live in freedom. They lived under Roman rule. But they knew who God was. They were sure that he hadn't abandoned them. They were, they were confident that he was, he was going to come and rescue them, that their story wasn't over. So they're, they're on high alert at this point. They're anticipating the arrival of the Messiah who'd been promised. They were waiting for, for this, this king in the mold of the great King David, but, but even better, they had a hope that he would come and liberate them and establish God's kingdom on the earth. And, and how would the Messiah, the Christ, do this? Well, surely he was going to come and crush the Romans. He was going to lead them to victory in battle, just as God had always done. This was their, their hope. This is where they were heading as a nation. This was their, their story that they were a part of. So can you imagine the excitement on Palm Sunday? The anticipation, the rumours have been circulating from, for days. Christ is, is coming. He's coming to Jerusalem, God's holy city. People are lying in the streets. The anticipation is building. The happy ending, it's there. It's in sight. This is it. It's time. The great son of David is here. Revolution is now. But here's the first twist in the tale, if you like. Christ rides into Jerusalem, not, not as a mighty warrior, not, not with horse and chariots and a big army, but on a, on a little donkey. And the donkey was, was an animal of peace, not of war. But people lay out their coats anyway, they, they shout praise to God. And they've probably put two and two together. They remember that this is what the prophet Zechariah said would happen. That their king would come righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. And this fits with the character of Jesus, doesn't it, that we see in the Gospels. He's not about pomp and ceremony. That's not Jesus. He doesn't strut around in kind of pride and self-importance. But he calmly goes, goes about just yeah, quietly obeying his father's will in the spirit's power. I think often when we think about sort of power and authority in the world, it, it, it brings to mind 
a sort of self-centered, self-serving kind of authority. A sort of grasping at others' expense. Does that, does that ring true for you? We, we kind of see it in politics, don't we, sometimes in, in business, in the media. Uh, we might see it in, in our work environment. Maybe we've even come across that in our, in our family lives. But that's not how Jesus uses power. The one through whom the world was, was created, who had the right to exercise authority, authority in, in any way he chose, he comes in meekness and humility. Uh, you might be familiar with um, the, these words from the Apostle Paul. He um, picks up on this in his letter to the Philippians. They were a group of first century Christians living in Greece. And he tells them to have the same attitude as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And that, that humbling, um, as he was born as a human, uh, that would be the pattern for his life. He wasn't going to come and seize power by force. If there's a victory to be won, it's going to be won by a humble king. Then in the week following Palm Sunday, as Jesus clears the corruption from the temple and predicts its destruction, as he tells the Jews to be good citizens, and to pay their taxes to Caesar, as he clashes with the top religious leaders and finally is arrested and condemned to death, then it becomes clear that he isn't going to meet the Jews' expectations at all. He came not to overthrow the Roman occupiers, but to be beaten by them, to be humiliated by them, not to assert his authority, but to be rendered completely helpless as he's stripped and nailed to a cross. But even then, some must have thought, okay, this, this, is, this is it. There's going to be the, the big twist now. We're just, we're gearing up for the grand finale. This is the best kind of story, isn't it? Where right at the last minute, um, the hero turns the tables. He's going to come down from the cross and, you know, zap the Romans. But they would be bitterly disappointed. Jesus takes his last breath. His side is pierced to confirm that he's dead. His body's put in the ground, he's buried. And that looks like that. This wasn't really the Messiah. Back to the drawing board. And so we come to, to Acts 2 and the real surprise, the, the staggering twist. And I know what you're thinking, but it's not the resurrection. We'll get there. But I want to try and, try, try and convince you that there's an even, even bigger twist before we get there. So if, if you've got your Bibles, open them back up to Luke chapter 23, verse 42. Uh, it'll be on the screen as well. Um, the, these are the words of the thief on the cross next to Jesus. Uh, they're probably familiar words, but what, what do you make of them? This man crucified alongside Jesus turns to the cross next to him. He looks at the naked, broken, gasping body of an apparently failed Messiah and makes this request. 
Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Do you see what this guy is saying? That the brutal death that is happening right next to him, in the same way that he is dying, is of an utterly different kind to his own. It's not just a death. Somehow, this crucified Jew is about to be enthroned as the king of a kingdom. How does power normally change hands in a monarchy? It's when the the current king or queen dies, right? So when Queen Elizabeth dies, if she ever does, I, I feel like she's probably immortal at this stage, but anyway, if she ever does, that's when Charles will become king, right? But here, if the thief is right, it's the king to be that dies and assumes power over a kingdom. Do you hear how, like, how illogical that sounds? It's topsy-turvy thinking, isn't it? It's upside down. My nana would have said, it's front to run. Is this the deluded rambling of a dying criminal? Or is it the biggest, greatest plot twist ever? Well, when we look back into the Old Testament, we can see that it doesn't come entirely out of the blue. You know, if you, one of those films that we talked about earlier, if you're watching it for a second time, you'll pick up on loads of hints and you're like, how did I not see this coming before? So let me take you to Isaiah. Um, You don't need to turn there, but Isaiah was a prophet in Israel, writing a few hundred years before Jesus. And in some of the later chapters, he begins to describe this servant of God, the Messiah, through whom God will bring his rule. Uh, And this is what Isaiah says about the Messiah in chapter 52. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Do you see the big reversal here? Some people will look, they'll look at him and and they'll have to turn away in disgust. Yet, at the same time, kings will be rendered speechless as they look because of what is really going on. The king of kings is ascending to the throne. And then just a few verses on in Isaiah, God says, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. This is victory language, isn't it? Dividing the spoils. That's what you do after a conquest. God is promising to establish a new kingdom and place on the throne someone who dies. So the prophets expected this. What about Jesus himself? Well, over the last couple of months, we've worked our way through chapters 11 to 13 of Matthew, haven't we? And, and Jesus has talked quite a lot about the kingdom of God. He's told a lot of parables uh, about it. He, he's confident that the kingdom is coming. But he's also saying about his own death. 
uh, thinking about Mark's gospel um, from chapter 8 onwards, Jesus starts saying about himself that he must suffer many things and he must be killed. So he's confident about, about both of these things. God's kingdom is coming, but that he himself was going to die. The kingdom for now wasn't going to look impressive, but small and insignificant, like a mustard seed. It would begin with his death. Okay, so that, that's what Jesus thought. What, what about what happens next? Well, after he was crucified on the Friday, we know Jesus was raised to life on the Sunday. God was rubber stamping Christ's victory. He was confirming to us that Jesus is indeed worthy to be crowned king. Uh, I, I guess that was his kind of coronation. It was God announcing that Jesus is the king. But the way that he actually won the victory and ascended to the throne was through the cross. And we see, see this in some of the early Christian writings about the cross. So let's go back to Philippians 2, where we read earlier that Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And Paul goes on. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see that? Do you see how Jesus' death and his victory are linked? His humiliation is the reason for his exaltation. He becomes king as a result of his death. Uh, Just one more place I want to go is uh, Revelation chapters 4 and 5. And the Apostle John, um, yeah, he has a vision. Uh, We can't get into all of the context today, but... Great chapters to go away and read um, if you're not familiar with those. Um, but I'm just going to pick up a couple of verses from, from John. Uh, then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. Jesus is, is a lion who has triumphed. But in the very next verse, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. And those who witness this cry out in song, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Do you see how Christ is both the lion who triumphs and the lamb who is slain? Someone has described the cross as as a lion-like victory by lamb-like means. It is because of his death that he is deserving of honour. So whichever angle we look at the cross from, the words of the thief are confirmed. Christ, in his suffering and in his death, wins the victory and becomes the king. The Christ who died is the Christ who reigns. His triumph on the cross is the ultimate plot twist. Well, the cross, it disappointed the Jews because as far as they could see, nothing had changed. The Romans were still in charge. They weren't free. But Jesus came to win a much bigger and better victory. So we're into Acts 3 of the story. The payoff. 
Well, ne next time we'll get into some more of the details about what this victory really achieves for us. But I want to close today just by uh, encouraging you to, to marvel at it, really, to marvel at its hidden glory. And one question that we haven't answered yet is this. Who does Jesus beat? Who are the losers in this story? That's pretty important, isn't it? Um, well, let me take you quickly to a couple of other verses in the New Testament to help us. We're jumping around a lot here, but yeah, just listen along. You don't need to look them up. So first, we're going to go to Hebrews, where um, the writer is discussing why God the Son took human flesh. And he says this. Since the children have flesh and blood, Christ too shared in their humanity, so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. So Christ, who does he beat? Well, he breaks the power of death and of the devil. Uh, and then if we go to Colossians, uh, Paul expands this victory. He says, having disarmed the powers and authorities, Christ made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So who are the enemies who Christ wins the victory over? It's the devil. It's the spiritual powers and authorities. It's the, the, the sin and the death that, by which they, they exert authority on us. It is, it is all the powers of evil in the world. Jesus came to beat them all. It's a cosmic victory, way beyond what the Jews were expecting. I think all of us have experienced um, evil, have experienced suffering to some extent over the last year. And many of you have felt the, the grief and the anguish of, of, uh, yeah, of illness, of pain, of death, the pain of loneliness and separation, fear and uncertainty, all of, all of those things and, and more that have come along with, with COVID. We, we really have felt and seen that the power of um, evil in the world. I think it's something that we're always aware of, isn't it? But just over the last year, maybe we've become a little bit more, more aware of. Yeah, when grief presses in on us, when tragedy hits, when it seems like things are, are hopeless, it seems like things are out of control, we can, we can have confidence that it is temporary and that evil will not ultimately win. A new king has ascended to the throne, a king who reigns over evil, who has broken its power decisively and who will return to, to destroy it completely. This is true reality. This is, this is a hope that is not uh, vague, it's not, it's not woolly, it's not hypothetical, but it's grounded in a real wooden cross and a real person crucified on it. Do you see as well how glorious it is that Christ's victory comes through the cross? He doesn't win by using his enemy's tactics, by, by grasping and hating and lashing out. He doesn't win by manipulation or abuse or deception. He doesn't win through fear. How, how would you feel about serving that kind of king? If that was the way Christ won, how would you feel about serving him? You, you might tremble before him, 
but he isn't going to be someone that you would love and rejoice in. Christ's way, though, is entirely different to his enemies. He overcomes evil, not with more evil, which really would be no victory at all, but he triumphs over evil by completely rejecting it. Uh, you might have heard of a guy called John Stott. He was an Anglican preacher, and for 30 years he was chaplain to the Queen, uh, appropriately, uh, royal. Uh, he wrote a book called The Cross of Christ, and, and he has a brilliant meditation on this uh, in that book. And I can't beat it, so I, I'm just going to read it to you. He says this, uh, Provoked by the insults and tortures to which he was subjected, Jesus absolutely refused to retaliate. By his self-giving love for others, he overcame evil with good. Again, when the combined forces of Rome and Jerusalem were arrayed against him, he could have met power with power. For Pilate had no ultimate authority over him. More than 12 legions of angels would have sped to his rescue if he'd summoned them. And he could have stepped down from the cross, as in jest they challenged him to do. But he declined any resort to worldly power. He was crucified in weakness, though the weakness of God was stronger than human strength. Thus he refused either to disobey God, or to hate his enemies, or to imitate the world's use of power. By his obedience, his love, and his meekness, he won a great moral victory over the powers of evil. He remained free, uncontaminated, uncompromised. The devil could gain no hold on him and had to concede defeat. Doesn't it take your breath away? Doesn't Jesus take your breath away? He is the light shining out of the darkness and into the darkness. This is what makes the cross a glorious triumph. What a king! What a king who is truly worthy of our devotion and love. Oh, I wish we could sing about him together. And the means of Christ's victory helps us to see the shape of his kingdom as well. What, what does his kingdom look like? It looks like humility, self-sacrifice, service, meekness. His victory was cross-shaped. And, and that, is, that is the shape of his kingdom too. What I mean is that, that the things valued in his kingdom are not power, strength, might, fame, fortune. None of those things. But sacrifice and service and love. Yeah, who would make this up? If you're inventing a new religion... You would, you would make a big, strong, powerful hero. I mean, we know that, don't we? If you think about the, the superhero movies, where it's all about strength, about gadgets, about, uh, yeah, skills and intellect. This, this is what would make people get on board, right? God should have done that. He should have sent someone big and strong who people would go, yeah, I want to follow him. So, that, so there's a kind of hiddenness to this glory. Naturally, we're, we're blind to it. We think the cross is, is foolish. And the New Testament even admits that this is how it seems. 
and we look out into the world, we still see evil there. We, we look at ourselves, we still see evil at work. So seeing the victory of the cross requires, uh, well, it requires a work of God's spirit and it requires the eyes of faith. But not blind faith. This isn't faith in something which happened, you know, once upon a time or um, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. It's a tangible historical event. It's faith in a person who lived and died and rose again that we have faith. This is where we, where we look, where we trust, where we celebrate. The thief crucified with Jesus sees something that is not immediately obvious to the eyes. He doesn't look at the cross and see evil overcoming good, but he sees good overcoming evil. He sees past what's in front of him to the true reality behind it. If you've never seen the the surprise, the glory of the cross before, get on the winning team. Get on Jesus' team. Put your trust in the king and enter into his kingdom. And for those who, like the thief, have taken hold of Jesus by faith and are welcomed into his kingdom, let's let's celebrate. Let's, Let's rejoice. Let's burst in the wondrous wondrous cross let's pray father god we thank you for the wonderful uh, plot twist the wonderful news of easter that christ wins the victory uh, and we we thank you jesus that, that you came and won the victory uh, yeah not not using your enemy's tactics but in love in in humility and meekness you went through a cross and we thank you uh, holy spirit that that you open our eyes to see the cross for what it is victory over evil thank you that that uh, yeah that we can have confidence that evil will not win the day has not won the day but that christ has so give us joy in this help us to celebrate it even at this time lord And we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.